There's a saying that you need to be 10% smarter than whatever piece of technology that you're using. And the fact that the last few minutes I spoke to you and prayed uh, was not amplified, was not because of failed batteries or anything but user error. So those of you that uh, gave me the benefit of the doubt and thought maybe the microphone died, I appreciate that. But the reality is I am certainly not 10% smarter than our PA system. But it is working now, praise God. <clears throat> this morning we continue our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we finish up chapter 10 this morning, verses 14 through 11, chapter 11, verse 1. That's found on page 957 in the Bibles that are provided for you there in the rows. If you would like to follow along, if you do not have your own copies of the scriptures with you this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let, one seek his, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Let us pray together. Lord, I pray for help for both the preacher and the hearers this morning. That our eyes would be opened to the wonderful things from your word and our lives transformed by your grace. Lord, I pray that every believer in this room would draw near to you 
today in faith through your word. And Lord, that any unbeliever present would have his or her eyes open to their truth, the truth of their need for the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, may I not preach for the approval of man, but for your glory. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, you kind of come at the, at the end of a, of a three-chapter answer that the Apostle Paul is giving to the church in Corinth in, re, in relation to a question that they had asked him in, in a previous letter about the legality or the, the wisdom of Christians in Corinth eating food that had been offered at the temple, the pagan temples there in Corinth. Now, when we were beginning our study of the book of 1 Corinthians way back in the fall, uh, we learned that Corinth was a city that, that had many idols, many altars where people would come and worship the false gods. And so the Corinthians, obviously, they were saved from that type of idolatry, but they still lived in a culture that was saturated with it. And so the Corinthians, among many of the questions they had for Paul about how they should live, uh, one of those related to that. Is it lawful? Is it wise to eat food sacrificed to idols? And, and here at the end of chapter 10, we, we, we find Paul finishing up a rather long answer, because not because it was necessarily just a yes or no thing, but Paul pastorally and wisely tries to get to the heart of the matter, because there was a greater issue at hand than, than simply eating or not eating. There's a heart issue that Paul is trying to get at here. And he wants the Corinthians to see the obligation of love that they have towards one another. But we see this morning also that there are deeper spiritual implications at play. Paul's words in chapter 10, 14 through 11, 1 really serve as a call to action to the Corinthians and to us as we seek to be faithful followers of Christ in relation to how we should, are able to live more faithfully in this fallen world for the glory of God. Paul does so in three ways. He does so first by calling them to a single-minded devotion to God. Secondly, he calls them to, to develop a sincere love for others, both inside and outside the church. And then he closes by revealing what should be the guiding principle in the Christian life. These are the three headings under which we're going to tackle this lengthy passage of Scripture. And, and it really is my prayer this morning that, that the Lord would increase our devotion, our love, and our faithfulness as we are fed from His Word this morning. Let's look first at, at verses 14 through 22, a, a call to single-minded devotion. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, free, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread." Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? 
that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, we've learned already that the the self-centeredness and the spiritual immaturity of the Corinthian believers has has really been well established up to this point. And the fact that Paul was, was having to address the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols illustrates this perfectly. Remember, the, the freedoms that one group thought they had were, were actually causing a crisis of faith for another group within the church. So, so Paul comes back to the heart of the matter and, and the importance of being guided by love, or by love in verses 23 through 30. Here in verses 14 through 22, though, Paul points out there's also a deeper issue at play, another problem with their publicly dining in the pagan temples. In doing so, they were sending a mixed message to the world about who they were truly devoted to. Paul Paul uses the Lord's Supper to to, to illustrate the the, the danger or to highlight the danger that the so-called mature Corinthian believers had placed themselves in by by flaunting their freedoms publicly. They felt the the freedom not just to, to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, but they felt the freedom also to actually publicly go and dine in the temple with their pagan friends. And so Paul says, listen, there's a, there's, a, there's a deeper issue at hand. Yes, an idol is nothing. The, 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 the supposed gods that they represent aren't real, but there's a spiritual reality in play. This is a powerful section of 1 Corinthians. Now, having just warned the Corinthians and reminded them of God's faithfulness in verses 12 and 13, we saw that last week, Paul then commands the church to act. Let me, let's back up to, the, to, to verses 12 and 13 and then read into 14. Paul writes, Therefore, this is after, remember, giving the history of Israel and how they had experienced all of God's goodness, God's miraculous deliverance and provision in their lives. Paul stops and says, okay, now, you've seen this. This has been written for our example, the history of Israel. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Verse 14, therefore... My beloved, flee from idolatry. So, so you see the weight of the command in verse 14 when we consider it in the context with verses 12 and 13. Paul tells them in verse 12, you can fall. Then he empowers them by reminding them, you can, but God is faithful. And he'll give you a way of an escape. But then in verse 14, he says, take that avenue of escape. Flee from idolatry. And this really should be our approach when dealing with the temptations that we find ourselves battling the most. 
Remember the weakness of your flesh. Stand on the promises of God. And whenever possible, avoid the situation that lead to greater temptation. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, the, the way of escape is to do everything we can to avoid the situation altogether. This isn't always possible, but when we can, we should. For, for, for the health of the church and the, and the clarity of the church's testimony, Paul tells the Corinthians to flee from the temple. Don't go there. You, 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 you think you have this freedom, but don't go there. And he makes this case actually by focusing on the meal that the church is commanded to celebrate together. You see the, the contrast between the Lord's Supper and then the dining in the temple which took place among the pagans. And as Paul fleshes this out beginning in verse 16, he, he reminds us of two important realities concerning the Lord's Supper. The first is in verse 16 that the Lord's Supper illustrates our union with our Savior. This is what he's writing there in verse 16. He says, the, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Paul says that the bread and the juice are a participation in the body and the, and the blood. The, the Greek word that, that's translated participation is actually the, the word koinonia. And that's a word that might be familiar to some of you. It's, it's typically translated fellowship, which I think really adds a lot of thrust to what communion should mean to us as a church, what the Lord's Supper should mean. We are having fellowship with the body and blood of Christ in terms of that we recognize that we identify with, we are dependent upon, we are, are covered by what Christ has done that union is uh, uh, that we celebrate together as a church is is based on our shared faith in Jesus we we participate in we have fellowship with we share in the body and blood of Jesus through our faith in him his sacrifice becomes our sacrifice it was our sins that Christ died for and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it, it illustrates publicly our ongoing faith in Christ who died and rose again to redeem us. And so the, the, the first point that Paul makes is that when you do this, this commanded meal, you are publicly testifying that you belong to Christ. And so the argument would be, how can you go to church on Sunday and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper with the, with the people of God, and then in turn, throughout the week, go to the pagan temple and eat with those who worship a false god? In, in partaking in that meal, you're leading some to believe that you're worshiping that God. And so Paul is pointing out a, a, a spiritual conflict of interest, if you will. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is for all who truly believe. So it demonstrates our faith in Christ, but it is also something that is specific to those who believe, all who believe. It's not just for one group of Christians or one class of Christians. It's for all who truly believe. 
Verse 17, Paul writes, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake. We all partake of the one bread. Now, as I said before, it's a celebration of what Jesus has accomplished for his people. And it's an ongoing celebration that, that we are commanded as the church to celebrate until Christ returns. Unbelievers who eat the bread and drink the cup, they're just ingesting food. But for the believer, it is a spiritual act of worship. And it must always be that for us. We, we, we cannot take lightly when we share the cup and the bread together on a Sunday morning. We're, we're called to do so soberly in, in reflecting on the price that was paid. We're, we're called to do so with an attitude of, of celebration because we recognize that in what we are reflecting on, we have been redeemed. And we're also called to do so expectantly as we await the return of Christ, our Lord and Savior. And this is for all Christians. So, so for the believer, when we celebrate, we're remembering and giving thanks to the one who gave his life to redeem us. Again, contrast that with the compromise of going to the temple and really sending another message. Paul said, listen, you've got a meal to celebrate, a religious meal. And it's the greatest celebration that will ever be had until Christ returns. It's this ongoing reflection of what he's accomplished. Now, some of the Corinthian Christians were, were dining publicly in the temples that were devoted to false gods. And, and in verses 18 through 22, Paul ramps it up by giving warnings. He's already made it clear that there's one celebration for the church, one meal, the Lord's Supper. And now he says, listen, what you don't realize is that, yes, you are right in your assertion that the, the idols that, 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 that are represented there represent false gods. But what you don't realize is that there's still a spiritual dynamic to what's going on. Listen to verses 18 through 22 as Paul warns the Corinthians. He says, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now in verse 18, what Paul's doing, he's, he's using the example of the Old Testament system of worship to make an important point. The, the priests who served in the temple were, were paid, if you will, and in part by being allowed to partake in eating the sacrifices from, from the excess of the food that was offered by the people of Israel. This was by God's design, and an offering that ended up being eaten by the priest was just as honoring to God as, as an offering that ended up on the altar. It was, it was the heart behind it, but God had designed it so that the priest would be able to eat. And the point was simple, that, that, that the food that was offered in the temple was for those who served God. And for the Corinthians to dine publicly in the pagan temple was, was to give the impression that they were there for worship, just as the unbelievers were, no matter what their motives may have been. Their lives were communicating to the world something that was untrue 
that Christians can be okay with the worship of other gods. We, we cannot be okay, especially in our own practice. Our Lord truly is a, 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 a jealous God, not in the, in the sinful way that we get jealous, but, but jealous in the sense that, that He, God alone, is the only one that is worthy of total worship and devotion. And so when we place that affection, that devotion on other things, it is dishonoring to Him and it is bad for us. So Paul continues by revealing that the issue at hand is not even about food. It's a, it's a spiritual issue. Look at verses 19 through 22. In, in verses 19 and 20, Paul says that it's not about food. It's about a spiritual reality. Although the idols were fake and the gods that they represented were fake, idolatry itself is demonic in nature because worship is giving to, to, to anything or anyone other than the one who deserve it, deserves it. That is demonic. The, the devil does not care what we are devoted to as long as it's not God. So whether it be a false religion, a faulty theology, money, reputation, comfort, even our families, leisure time, physical pleasure, anything else, when we are, are, are tempted to be devoted primarily to any of these things over and above our devotion to the Lord, we are following the ways of demons. That's a pretty strong point, is it not? We need to understand as it relates to spiritual warfare, temptation, things like that. Satan and his evil ones are, are, are not concerned that we outright identify, yes, I'm following the devil in this. In fact, the, the whole point is, is to simply get our affections away from and our attention off of our Lord. That's the, the demonic nature of this. For, for the Corinthians, it was actual idols that were devoted to false gods, but idolatry takes many forms. And so as we look at these verses, we must do so with Paul's words echoing in our mind. Flee from idolatry. Flee from, run from, get away from. Listen, some of the things I listed were good. Family is good. Leisure time is acceptable. Physical pleasure within God's parameters. Are, it's a good thing. These are good gifts from God, but they were never meant to take the place of God. And, and so the, the tension that we face in our Christian lives is to, is to live in light of who we are in Christ and, and to seek to honor Him as we enjoy these good gifts that He's given us. This is a spiritual battle, dear ones. And we must learn to recognize and flee from those idolatrous temptations that we face. Finally, Paul points out that it is of the highest importance that we get it right when it comes to worship. In verses 21 and 22, he reminds us that, we, that, that, that the Corinthians, they can't have it both ways and neither can we. The, the idolatry, the cup of demons, is incompatible with being faithful to the Lord. These are strong words from the Apostle Paul that we would do well to remember as we deal with what 
probably appears to us to be less crass forms of idolatry. You know, you, you think of what the, the pagans did in New Testament times, and you, you look at that and you think, well, that's pretty crass. They're worshiping a rock, a piece of wood. We would never do idolatry like that, right? Probably not. Some do. But the danger is no less serious for us. What do we worship over and above our Lord? Whatever it is, is still demonic. It is still dishonoring to the Lord. And we must never forget that our Lord is jealous for the devotion that he is due. Again, we stop and we give thanks for the grace of God that has saved us from, 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 from the judgment that our idolatry deserves. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ our Lord and Savior. But we cannot remain okay with the sin that formerly entangled us. Flee from idolatry. Paul moves on to, 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 to focus on the, uh, the relationships among the Corinthians within the church, but also outside the church. In verses 23 through 30, he calls the church to a sincere love. Paul continues, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now again, you likely notice the question or the quotation marks around all things are lawful in verse 23. The translators believe that Paul is, is, is quoting what they had written to him in the, in the previous letter and also correcting with his response. All things are lawful was apparently one of the arguments used by the Corinthians who felt the freedom of conscience to eat at the temples. The, the Corinthians had adopted a dangerous approach to their understanding of Christianity. They had taken an important truth, all things are lawful, and perverted it by divorcing it from the greater teaching of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did indeed die to set us free from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.3. 3. But we must remember that the curse of the law is not the law itself, but the guilt and, and the result, resulting judgment that the law reveals to us. In Christ, we are set free from the law's requirement as the basis for our righteousness. We have something better, Jesus' righteousness, credited to us. But some in Corinth who thought they were mature took this freedom to mean that they could engage in worldly practices of their culture, such as dining in the pagan temple without there being any consequence because Jesus set them free, right? They could do whatever they wanted. And Paul makes it clear that that's not the standard by which we are called to live. We have been set free from the curse of the law. The, the penalty of the law is the basis for us trying to earn our righteousness before God. But this does not mean that we're set free to live 
as we please. It means we've been set free to live as we ought to live as followers of Christ. In chapter 8, Paul addressed the problem of this way of thinking by, by focusing on how the, 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 their behavior was causing a crisis of conscience for their brothers and sisters who, who saw eating the meat in the, from the temples as a stumbling block to their own faith. Already in chapter 10, we see that although the, the gods represented in the temple were not real, there was still a spiritual nature to idol worship, a demonic nature. In verses 23 through 30, Paul puts another twist on the danger of abusing our freedoms in Christ. He, he reminds us that a sincere love for others demands that we actively pursue what is best for them, both Christians and non-Christians alike. While th all things are lawful, Paul reminds us that all things are not helpful and that not all things build up. With these two statements, we are reminded of the obligation that we have to love one another well in the body of Christ. Remember, dear church, love is most clearly revealed not through our affections and our emotions, but through our actions. Back in chapter 8, Paul concluded that he himself would, would rather never eat meat than be a stumbling block to a weaker brother or sister in the faith. Let that sink in. He was willing to, to sacrifice a, what I would say is a very enjoyable freedom for the good of his brothers and sisters in Christ. This, this principle transfers to almost every other area of our lives, dear ones. A believer may have complete freedom of conscience and more importantly, a freedom that's on the basis of their understanding of Scripture to engage in an activity, but we should be willing to abstain from it whenever, we, whenever doing so would be unhelpful or a failure to build up other believers or even unintentionally communicate something untrue about the gospel to unbelievers. Now, we struggle with this principle because we love our freedoms, don't we? But honestly, we must love to love, learn to love one another better. The, the Greek word that's translated helpful in verse 23 literally means to bring together or to unify. All things are lawful, but not all things unify. Not all things bring together the body of Christ. And, and really, that is the argument, is it not, in this whole problem of, of some Christians having the freedom to eat in the temple while others seeing that as a stumbling block. The question isn't who's right. The question is what's best for Christ's church. The next phrase, all things are lawful, but not all things are, 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 are not all things build up. Build up is a, is, is a construction term, but we could best understand it to mean to strengthen. What, what strengthens those in verse 24, Paul gives clear instruction on how our love should be expressed and how we relate to others. He writes, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So the question must be asked, is, is this freedom that I want to express, is it unifying? Does it strengthen my brother or sister in the faith? 
These are good questions to ask ourselves as we exercise our Christian liberties. The, the choices we make in a given situation might look different depending on who we are with. In some settings, liberties are, are shared and, and it's okay, but in another setting that might be a stumbling block. So what does that mean? It means we need to know one another. It means we need to ask one another, hey, we're out to dinner. Do you mind if I have this? Is it going to be a stumbling block if you don't know? And answer honestly. And if it is, then don't. There, there, there is nothing, no temporary pleasure that we're going to enjoy in this life that, that should be more important to us than the spiritual health of our brothers and sisters in Christ and also our testimony before a watching world. That's Paul's whole point in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through the beginning of 11 is that there is nothing that you can do that is worth it if doing that destroys the faith of someone else. We must be guided by a, a stronger love for others than we have for the things that we enjoy about the freedoms we have in Christ. Now in verses 25 through 30, Paul gives specific instructions on how the Corinthians were to tackle the problem they were facing, whether or not it was okay to, 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 to eat the meat that had been sacrificed but was now being served in the home. He's already addressed eating at the temple. It's not wise. Now he's dealing with the fact that much of the meat sold in the marketplace had also been offered in the temple. Verse 25, Paul writes, Eat whatever is sold in the market, in the meat market, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I being denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks." Now, Paul's prescription is simple. When shopping at the market or, or dining at someone's house, simply don't ask where the meat came from. So that porterhouse you're grilling up is fine, whether it came to the market from the temple or through the butcher. Don't ask, don't worry about it, because you don't need to add that unnecessary burden to your conscience, Paul is saying. And in verse 27, even in the case of eating with unbelievers, Paul counsels the church to, to eat without asking where it came from. But in verse 28, Paul calls for the exercise of wisdom and caution when the source of the meat is revealed. And really, the caution in verses 28 through 30 is to avoid becoming a stumbling block for, for others. In the case of dining with other believers, abstaining from the meat, Offered at the temple was to guard against creating a stumbling block for someone who may be weaker in the faith. An unbeliever might have even thought it was wrong for Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. So Paul's counsel is to be careful. Rather, better to be safe than a stumbling block. His point is simple. A delicious meal is nowhere nearly as important as the spiritual health of others. In the second half of verse 29 and 30, 
Paul reveals that our liberty is more than simply the freedom of conscience, but liberty is also our ability to choose what is best for others. So think about that for a moment. Liberty isn't just the freedoms that we have. Liberty is the ability that we have to make the best decision for others. We, we tend to just think of it from a self-centered perspective, do we not? Oh, well, I have, a, I have a freedom of conscience about alcohol, so as long as I don't get drunk, I can have a, a glass of wine before I go to bed at night or, or with my meal. Well, yes, that's Christian liberty. But liberty is also to recognize that you're with someone that, that, that does not hold that same view and, and to choose to not go that route for the good of the other. That's just as much liberty on your part. You have a choice to love them well. And Paul wants us to, to think about our liberties in that way, brothers and sisters. It's not just what we're free to do. It's also the, the ability we have to, to choose to abstain for the good of others. We see this in the form of two questions. Paul writes, For why should my liberty be, be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, if you first read that, it almost seems like Paul's contradicting everything he said up to this point, doesn't it? If you, if you, if you simply think of Christian liberty again as what we're allowed to do, then yeah, you look at it that way. But the point that Paul is making is simple. Why why would I choose to do something that would be a stumbling block for someone else? Or how can I bow my head and, and, and give thanks to God for something that I'm doing that's causing someone else a crisis in faith? That's a, that's a, that's a way to understand the, what Paul's driving at there. And that's a great question, isn't it? How can I give thanks for something that's causing a crisis of faith for a brother or sister? You know, one of the things as we talk about the Christian life is this aspect of, of dying to self. And, and, and a passage right, like this really brings it front and center, does it not? We are called at times to die to things that are even good for us, for the good are acceptable for us, for the good of others. Liberty is our freedom to choose what is best for others. So I ask this morning, are we pursuing a sincere love for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we pursuing a sincere love for those outside the faith, wanting to make sure that there is nothing that we are doing that is communicating something that's not true about the gospel? And Paul helps us in verses 31 through 11:1 by giving us the, the Christian's guiding principle. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now as I close with these verses, I want to point out that the principle in verse 31, do all things for the glory of God, plays itself out really through the rest of the letter. You could look at, at 1 Corinthians 10.31 as, as a hinge on which the last part of this letter turns. He's going to address issues in worship and, and relational issues they have in the church. And it's going to be through this lens of do all things 
for the glory of God. In fact, you can say that, that it also serves to, to, to really of everything that Paul's been building up to this point. So, so don't just gloss over this as something that you've heard a million times before. But let it become a principle that guides the decisions you make in life. This must be our guiding principle. The, the, the Greek word translated glory is doxa. Sometimes as a church we sing a little song called the doxology. It's a song of, of praise, extolling the, the greatness of God. Doxa is also translated splendor, majesty, brightness, praise, honor, amazing might, and greatness. And this principle of doing all things to the glory of God reveals a concern within us that God be seen rightly by the world because he is all those things he is all those things and and our calling as as followers of Christ even as we do it imperfectly is to measure and order our lives in such a way that they reflect his greatness That's why we are counseled elsewhere in Scripture to to live in such a way that that, that even the unbelievers look at our lives and they give glory to the God who saved us. They want to know about the, 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 the hope that is within us. We want God to be seen rightly because of how we live. He is powerful. He is good. He is loving. He is righteous. He is Holy, and the list could go on and on and on. And, and our concern should, should be that our lives reflect these truths about him. This is our guiding principle. Paul makes it clear that this principle affects more this than just whether or not they ate or did not eat the food that had been sacrificed in the temple, but extended to all of life and ministry. Look at verses 32 and 33. He says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. We could almost flip back to the end of chapter 9 where Paul says all of these things. He, he ministers in such a way, giving over his own rights, so that for any opportunity he could be able to preach the, God, the gospel without being a stumbling block. Again, he's concerned that our actions don't become a stumbling block to those outside the church or or a hindrance of growth for those who are inside the body of Christ. Now, we must remember that there will be times when faithfulness to the Lord will be a stumbling block. The gospel is a stumbling block to non-believers. So Paul's not saying there aren't times when what we proclaim and what we do stands in contrast to the world. But we want those to be gospel issues and not liberty issues. And that's how Paul lived his life. He did not hold back from proclaiming the full counsel of God to the lost, even calling them out in their sin. But at the same time, he was willing to to let go of other rights in order to have that opportunity to proclaim the truth. So we're not talking about Christianity in this meek and mild and we're never going to speak the truth in love to others. That's not what Paul's talking about. This is specifically focused on giving over certain liberties to be able to, to proclaim the gospel more clearly. 
think about it as it relates to others in our lives. Do you really want your actions to cause a crisis of faith for another brother or sister in Christ? Think about the weight that you would feel knowing that. If we love the Lord and love others, then our answer will be no. Do we really want our actions to, to serve as a hindrance for a non-believer and their willingness to listen to the gospel? Again, if we love the Lord and we love others, then the answer must be no. I mentioned before in chapter 9, Paul points to his own example of giving up his rights. And then he calls the church to follow that example. In chapter 11, verse 1, he, he calls them to follow his example because he is following the example of Christ who sacrificed his rights in order to become flesh and die to redeem us. And Paul's call to the Corinthians is a call to us as well. Do all things for the glory of God. Follow the example of Paul who is following the example of Christ. As we close this morning, as we do each week, I want to do so with, with very simple applications as they relate to our way of life. As we exercise our Christian liberty in the presence of others, we need to ask ourselves two questions. Is what I'm doing bringing unity to the church? And how does what I'm doing or does what I'm doing strengthen the faith of others? And there's a third question that we must ask ourselves that, that really encapsulates the two that I just shared, but also covers our private lives as well. Can I engage in this activity, this liberty, and still bring glory to God? These questions will have a purifying and sobering effect on how we view our lives Understand something. These, these questions are not restrictive in a bad way. In fact, they serve to free us to experience true joy in Christ. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross to restore us to God. It is a small thing for us to humble ourselves and, and sacrifice in order to love and serve those around us. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would truly... Help us to love you and love others well. Lord, that we would be willing to, to sacrifice the liberties that we know we have in you in order to better love our brothers and sisters in Christ well, in order to, to love those outside the faith well, in order to proclaim the gospel to them. Lord, we truly do not want our lives to, to, to be a distraction, but to be a testimony to your glory. So Lord, I pray for us, Lord, that we would not view these these questions or even these calls from the Apostle Paul as, as legalistic efforts to attain anything from you, but Lord, uh, as an avenue to, to express our faith more clearly that the name of Christ would be glorified. Do this among your people, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.